when I started writing the book again, these these women, uh, this sort of, I call them the sort of pageant of womanhood, was really on my mind, and they were always connected to food and always connected to stories in the kitchen, and I wanted to write those stories down. So many of them have passed away now, and I feel it's so sad. Sometimes I feel like every time one of those women dies, it's like a library is being burnt. We're losing such a wealth of information and knowledge and wisdom. Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast with me, Felicity Blunt. Today, I'm joined by the immensely talented Ravinda Bogle, award-winning chef, restaurateur, TV presenter and writer. Born in Kenya to Indian parents, Ravinda moved to the UK as a young girl. Seeing the magic of immigrant cuisine, she creates recipes without borders, much like stories with no endings and always open to adaptation. In 2011, her debut cookbook, Cook in Boots, won the Gourmand World Cookbook Award for the UK's Best First Cookbook. In addition, she was awarded the first runners-up prize of the world's Best First Cookbook at the Paris Cookbook Fair. In 2020, she released her second cookbook, Jaconi, named after her critically acclaimed restaurant in Marlebone, London. Jay Rayner calls her a true talent, with a brilliant understanding of spicing and pitch-perfect taste. And her dishes are the kind that make you sit up and pay attention. So, without further delay, hello to my dear friend, Ravinda. Thank you for doing this. This is so exciting. It's just nice Very to hang out. And even though I know you, it's like I can now really get to know you. <laughs> I can <laughs> ask you all those questions that I wish other people had asked you, you know, in interviews. Aww. I mean, I couldn't help but smile when I said pitch perfect taste because I know you've just had COVID and you're feeling less than pitch perfect on the taste bud front. Are you all right? So frustrating. I mean, like it's worrying as well, but I think I'm getting glimmers of things, lots of citrus and ginger and I'm getting heat. It was very strange when I first had it because I was just covering everything in Tabasco and my mouth would burn, but I couldn't actually taste it. It's very weird. Oh, well, I'm, I'm actually so grateful that you've sort of managed to sort of struggle to be here remotely. We're doing this remotely because obviously everything is remote at these moments. But the theme for this is going to be food for transformation. And that is what I'd love to concentrate on with you, because I feel that you, in a chameleon-like way, have gone through many transformations <laughs> in your life. You said recently that you're working in a field where you can have a transformative effect on people and it's really rewarding. And I def- I want to talk about that, but I, I would love to talk as well about just your first sort of large change, which was the move from Kenya to London. And I'd love to know what the experience was to arrive in the UK as a seven-year-old. What stays with you of that transition when you think back to it? I think it was very, very difficult. My parents didn't actually tell us we were coming here to move here permanently, to live here. And, you know, England for me had always been this sort of merry-go-round of Fortnum and Mason and Hamleys and all these lovely things. And then suddenly we were here and, uh, you know, the move was very, very sudden and it was like a voyage into the dark. And my father had got this this really sort of shocking flat above a shop uh, that had no central heating, that had no washing machine. It was really difficult and it was freezing. It was November and I'd come from this backdrop of sort of beautiful, you know, lush, colossal trees and 
evergreen plants and flowers and so much space and colossal sky. And then here I was in this sort of very haggard, very urban area and no stars at night. That was the other thing. You know, I would look out at the sky and you'd see streetlights, but no stars. And that I found quite terrifying, actually. Yeah. So did was it that the landscape felt alien or did you feel alien within the landscape when you came? Both, I think. So they were certainly um, not being used to the weather. <laughs> you know, the frigid weather was something <laughs> I really struggled with. You know, I didn't even have a coat that first winter. It was just... Oh, you must have been so it cold. Was so cold. And that flat, you know, with no central heating. I remember literally sitting by the gas heater, almost like I, I was going to enter it. I was so cold. I couldn't, you know, I I sort of, I, I used to put, I remember I used to have these like bed slippers and I'd put my feet on the grates because my feet would be so cold and I'd constantly have like melted rubber on the on the, the soles of my slippers or I'd put my socks up there and then the holes would burn into my socks. But then, you know, I felt very alien here too because I felt I looked and sounded very different. I went to a school where there weren't many people who looked like me. I was really badly bullied for my accent. I had a very strong sort of, a very mixed accent, actually, because we were taught by both English and American nuns at my school. And and then, you know, you, you're sort of speaking with the Kenyan locals and your parents have Indian accents. So my accent was very mixed. And I think one of my, the most horrifying times in that was when I just started school. And I remember I must have been about seven or eight. And I was asked to read aloud A. Milne. And my teacher basically told me I had a very lazy way of speaking and I needed to speak proper English in front oh, of everyone. That's so cruel. Yeah, it really stayed with me. And I think I'd always longed for a sense of a space to which I could belong. And I think, you know, I, I've really thought about this and I think Jaconi is that for me. It's a space where I can you know, show, feel, uh, represent my entire experience, that of being Indian, East African, British, an immigrant, um, an immigrant who was given immense hospitality by other immigrant communities that I grew up around. It's, it's where my experience isn't cauterized or marginalized. It is a place for people who are just like me, who ache for what they've left behind, but who at the same time are touched by the wandering grace of their new landscape. I mean, I think that is what is so special, both about the restaurant and the book. Even when you're in the restaurant, it feels story-led, actually. It feels like there's an inheritance that you're enjoying at the table. And I think thinking about immigration and thinking about pe the people traveling, I feel so often the only things people are really able to bring with them and hold on to are food traditions or dishes that are incredibly dear to them. It feels as close to people as religion often. I think I think about my husband's family who came from Italy to America and how the honoring of that Calabrian food was so integral to them sort of, I suppose, answering their homesickness in, in some ways and, and honoring traditions. And I think I love that Giacconi feels very much and it feels intentional, but in a very good and generous way, like a family table, you know, a fit, like a sort of feasting table where everybody can come and talk and share stories. And that there are no borders when it comes to food for you, because you are an amalgamation of so many things. You have such a wide inheritance 
And that I think what is so beautiful about it is that it sort of breaks down these delineations that we sometimes set up between cultures and food cultures. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you come here as an immigrant, often uh, the landscape can look very barren. And it's only when you start settling in and calling a place home that suddenly uh, it becomes very fertile because you are you know, you've preserved and become very precious about your culinary heritage, but then you start to adapt and you start to overlay it with whatever influences your new landscape has, whether that's British influences or whether that's influences from little economies of immigrant shops and markets around you. And I think that's what actually makes British food now, you know, modern British food so delicious and I think that's why our cuisine is some of the best in the world. I love that. I love, um, I wanted to read back a quote actually that I have from you, which I think is so interesting about authenticity in food, which I know is sort of a great source of irritation for you, this idea of authenticity and expectation that you have to stay true to the origins of cuisines. And you said, authenticity is such a subjective thing, particularly when you've come from the background I came from. You were born in Kenya to Indian parents and moved to England age seven, as we've said. You say when your food culture is twice removed almost, it's always changing and new. I mean, I feel like that is sort of your, that's your sort of siren call. That's that's what you are always interpreting and reinterpreting when I see you on Instagram posting about a dish. And there are dishes that you have posted, you know, your riff on ketchup. I think, you know, it's sort of genius. The fact that you take something that is a British staple and you skewer it and you, I mean, why don't you actually tell everybody about the ketchup because they're all going to want to go home and try it. The banana ketchup. Yeah, (laughs) I love the banana ketchup. (laughs) Really, that again came from, you know, this, this immigrant um, trait that we have, which is just to never throw things away, to be really economical, to be really resourceful. And I just remember having a fruit bowl full of bananas that were going very, very ripe. And I thought, I can't make another banana cake. What should I do with it? <laughs> uh, uh, what should I do with all these bananas? And I just remember pureeing them and then sort of thinking, actually, in so many cultures and actually in the African tradition, you do use bananas in a very savory way or plantain in a very savory way. And right down Asia as well, they use bananas in a, in a, in a savory way. If you go to the Caribbean, again, they can use them in a savory way. So I thought, let me just try with spices because for me, spices are like the backbone of my cooking. They're everything. For me, um, my food without spices would be like elevator music, just one tonal, nothing to it. So I just remember putting together these really warm, fragrant spices, frying off onions, ginger, garlic, chili, and adding this this uh, puree of bananas and then adding vinegar to make it more of a chutney and some sugar. And it just turned into this really delicious thing, which everyone loves and everyone is mad about at the restaurant. Everybody loves. I mean, banana ketchup, but I love that because to me, it's sort of the best way of just illustrating what we're talking about, which is taking something that feels, uh, I suppose, preserved for all time in one sense and just making it into something that respects its roots, but is, is quite different. Yeah. I love that. I would love to talk a little bit about Jaconi, the cookbook, because it feels incredibly special as a sort of lasting testament to the integrity with which you set up Jaconi, the restaurant. Tell me about the process of writing the book, because it's it's not just a recipe book. It's, it's something more than that. And I think the sort of the wealth of praise that you've enjoyed, I mean, from 
Salman Rushdie to Jay Rayner. I mean, ever. I mean, you couldn't name somebody who hasn't praised that cookbook. Tell me more about it, please. Uh, well, I mean, writing it was um, was really um, emotional for me. It was a very emotional process, very cathartic in a way. And I felt very much when I was setting up Jaconi the restaurant that I was sort of living the dreams of many of the women that had taught me to cook, um, I was representing them. You know, I still strongly feel that whenever I stand at the pass, these women and their spirit is standing with me. And those women are, you know, often marginalized. They don't get the opportunity to do what they do professionally. They cook for their husbands and children. And I remember my mother saying that to me, you know, you have to learn to cook because you have to cook for your husband and your children. And that was the limitation. You know, that's where it stopped. No one would have dreamt of taking this further. Uh, and I did. I got that opportunity. And so I really wanted to honor um, these women when I was um, setting up the restaurant. And actually, the cuisine at Giacconi, one of the big parts of my philosophy when I cook is to cook in a very maternal way. And that I think is what sets the food at Giacconi apart. So then when I started writing the book, again, these these women, uh, this sort of, I call them the sort of pageant of womanhood, was really on my mind. And they were always connected to food and always connected to stories in the kitchen. And I wanted to write those stories down because they're the ones that have really sort of captured my imagination. Even when I'm just talking, whether, you know, to my friends or my husband or whatever, it's often memories of these women. And so many of them have passed away now. And I feel it's so sad because, you know, for me, sometimes I feel like every time one of those women dies, it's like a library is being burnt we're losing such a wealth of information and knowledge and wisdom. And I'm so lucky that I got to share in that wisdom with so many of these incredible women. So yeah, I had to write their stories down because they're, they're the strongest memories I have of food are connected to these women. So there's the story of the pickle maker, for example. I mean, I've never tasted pickles like hers. She was such an incredible woman. And I remember being sort of six and walking down the dust track to her house with the kind of empty glass jars clanking in my satchel. And um, she was deaf. So we'd stand at the gate calling for her, sometimes for an hour, because she had these really ferocious guard dogs. Uh, a geese as well <laughs> that would peck you to death. Um, and and then, you know, just going into her little pickling shed and the smells and, you know, all the paraphernalia and just how, you know, I mean, my husband says to me, how do you remember these things? You were so young. You you have such a sharp memory for, for all these things. And I think often it's at the end of everything, it's the love and affection someone has shown you that stays with you. It was strange. I had a weird experience recently. Someone came to the restaurant and I just walked in and um, our manager came up to me and said, there's someone here who's saying she knows you. And I peered around the corner and I thought, oh, awkward. I don't recognize her at all. <laughs> uh, but OK, yeah. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll walk over and, and say hello and, you know, she stood up and she was so excited to see me. And then she said, you know, the last time I saw you, you were this high. And she pointed to her knee. And so, of course, I wasn't going to remember her. And then 
<laughs> we got talking and you know the more i looked at her the more there was something really familiar about her and i mean i must have been about 4 four years old when i'd known her or seen her last and i said to her gosh was your mother's name balbir and she said yes and she said how do you remember that and i i just had this vision of this woman and she had her mother's face and this woman you know my sisters were much older than me so they'd go to this girl's house to play and i was the very uncool hanger on all of 4 or 5 years old and so they would sort of dump me in the kitchen with the mother and she would make these parathas and give them to me with jam or honey and she was just so kind and so nice to me and showed me so much love and never got cross with me and i just that i'd held on to that i'd remembered that and and again the connection was food it was what she was feeding me in the kitchen that i remembered and and i think food and sm- the smell of food i mean everybody talks about smell being such a sort of instant connection to memory and i think that's why food when you're thinking about your history or the journey that you've taken often the things you remember are around meals or or somebody feeding you you know when you're a kid yeah. when people often ask you what's your first memory you're like ice cream <laughs> you know i remember yeah. something being extraordinary for me it's guava trees the the smell of oh, the guava especially you know like the guavas warming in the sun in the morning and they would just smell so almost narcotic you know bouncing through your window and if you had guavas in the house you knew about it because every single room just smelled of guavas you see anybody listening to you and you are such a wordsmith will know that you are a wonderful writer it is it's so clear and i think what i wanted to touch on in in our, in the spirit of sort of the transformative you started and i think about your career i feel like it is sort of utterly unorthodox your sort of journey into food because in a way you've done everything in reverse order you were a fashion journalist so you were a writer you then won a television show um where you were sort of anointed by Gordon Ramsay the next Fanny Craddock i remember and for those who are not familiar with uh, Fanny Craddock she was a uh, well, i mean she was quite a terrifying and notorious uh, <laughs> british female chef <laughs> and from there you had a cookbook that won a number of awards and then it was in my mind it feels like there was a regrouping and you doubled down on everything and you opened a restaurant and you moved into being a chef not just a cook because i think there's sometimes understood to be a, a difference there and then you had another cookbook uh come out jaconi and you also acquired a column along the way but actually a lot of those things usually happen in a completely different order and it's it feels to me sort of observing you that you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and i sort of want to echo what you said at the beginning when you said in a way when you were taught to cook it was with quite a sort of a narrow idea of how you might use that it was for your husband and for your children and it feels like you have taken the love of food and you've got broader and broader and and sort of and and so expert in it if you look back to the fashion journalist you were then do you think she would believe that you would be where you are now would she be astonished and delighted were there points i guess what i would like to ask were there points where you felt that you lost faith that you could pull this off that you could keep transforming yourself into who you are now yeah definitely i think when i look back at the the girl uh, on the fashion magazine she would definitely find all of this unbelievable um you know i i feel that food was always my destiny i believed that but to this extent i didn't think it was possible at all you know i thought 
you know, I never, never imagined. I think um, no one had done it before me either. I didn't have any real role models as such or people I knew who'd done that. Even working as a fashion journalist, again, no one in my family had done that. I was the first girl in my family to go to university. So, you know, even that was a a wide leap. Um, But I just feel that you know, especially, you know, then when I when I got the book deal and I wrote my first book and I was still at that point in my life, a girl coming off of, you know, having worked on a fashion magazine that was still very much my mindset. And I didn't really know how to sort of cook in a restaurant or that didn't even really occur to me. I didn't have the mentors who'd said to me, oh, this is this is your career path and this is what you should be aiming for. It was all very, very accidental. And I remember I was lucky enough to present a TV show for Channel 4. And that's kind of where the real kind of change happened. My, so my co-host happened to be Jay Rayner. And he's like a mouth on legs. And, you know, he would stand there every time I'd done the cooking session and he'd eat and he'd say, wow, this is really delicious. You know, you should really think about learning the trade of restaurants. And that, weirdly, for someone who loved food as much as me, had ne- it never occurred to me. And so I just took him very, very seriously because uh, not having had those mentors, anyone who gave me advice, I was very serious about taking it, very committed to it. And I remember going and working in uh, various restaurants and doing stages and finding it really really hard. I mean, I remember doing my first double shift and just crying at the end because I could literally feel my heartbeat in my feet. I was so tired. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was something about it. There was some joy. And I and that, at that time, pop-ups were a big thing. And I remember Anna Hansen giving my, me my first opportunity to do one. And then it felt like I was a bit on a, a bit of a conveyor belt. And the next time, next one was at Selfridges and so on and so on. And by, you know, by the time I'd done this for about two years, I sort of built up a following of people. And I remember it was Faye Mashler who came to a six-week run that I was doing. And she just took me aside at the end and said, when are you going to stop being such a coward and find uh, a space of your own? And that sort of sounded to me like, uh, you know, Virginia Woolf, kind of a room of one's own. And I suddenly thought, you know, I've been lugging my stuff around for two years. Uh, I remember one particular occasion waking up on the tube, going so tired and having upturned an entire bottle of olive oil all over myself, (laughs) carrying my stuff around. And I was just like, got to that point where I can't do this anymore. And it was perfect because I had spent enough time in kitchens by that point to understand how they worked and also earning my stripes, I think that was really important for me as well. And and by that time also, I'd really birthed the idea of Jaconi and what it would look like, what it would um, mean, you know, what what would what would be its cultural significance. I had written all of that down. I'd written a menu. I I understood all of that. It was it was a, a real vision to me. And in fact, when we went to pitch to um, the Portman Estate, who actually, in my first meeting with them, I sort of forced myself uh, into a meeting with them. And uh, they just sort of laughed me out of their offices and said, you'll never get this site, you have no uh, operational experience, you know, you have no reputation. And we've already got 40 interested parties. And, And a year later, when it 
finally comes on the market, we're going to be marketing it properly. And sorry. Um, but I persisted and I kept going back to them. And actually, I, I snuck in on somebody else's viewing, in fact. Um, <laughs> did they know that you were sneaking in or did they, did they assume you were part of like the Portman estate? <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. I think it's just, it just, I was so sort of struck by this site. And I remember walking to the back and there's this sort of conservatory area, this sun sunroof or whatever. And I just looked up and it was strange because the view is it's a steeple with this huge cross. And it honestly felt like there was some sort of light bouncing off the cross onto my head. And being a religious person, I was like, this is it. It's a sign. Um, you know, this, this is a blessed space. And, and I was just like, I have to convince them. So I got my husband's business partner is an amazing illustrator. And I sat with him and I was like, this is what I want my site to look like. And we designed it all right down to the pistachio green terrazzo on the floor. And I took that painting into the Portman Estate and I was like, this is what I'm going to make the site look like. And that painting still hangs on the wall. And if you look at it, it's not actually too different to what has become reality. It's, it's incredible. It gives me chills every time I look at it. But that's wonderful. I think that that thing, and I think it can be very rare amongst women, actually, just self-belief. And you have in the past, I know to me, described yourself as sort of having a slight witch-like quality. And when you sort of like, if you believe in something fervently enough, you can bring it into being. And I think that's, I do think that's often true of anything that happens that feels unlikely, but somebody wants it so badly that they are single-minded in their focus. And I mean, clearly, they stood no chance. <laughs> you were going to have that space. I think I would definitely say I'm very bloody-minded. I think I inherited that from my father. Never take no for an answer. And just, you know, maybe that's also to do with immigrant work ethic. You just keep plugging away, keep pl plugging away. And I think that's drilled into me. But, you know, it's also about having a sense of purpose. And for me, I always dreamed that my restaurant would be more than just a restaurant, that it would be a, a cultural space, that it would be a space that fed into the community. So it's partly why I wanted to be in Marylebone, because it feels like a neighborhood, you know, it feels like I've got to know everybody and that we can, we can do some good that reaches out into our community. And for me, it's always been, well, how, how do we make sure that every pound that is being spent in this business is doing something good, whether that's just about transforming someone's day or, you know, sort of reaching out into our, the local charities like the Marylebone Food Cycle, but just doing something that feels transformative, purposeful and good. I feel that you're, you have another business, which is the comfort and joy side of your cooking, which I love. And I love, I actually, I just love the description of it because to me, that is exactly what food boils down to. And it's very best and it's simplest. It is comfort and joy. But did you set that up over COVID? Is that, is that something that started as we all went into lockdown? The idea for Comfort and Joy had always been uh, playing on my mind. It wasn't wasn't known as Comfort and Joy, but I'd always wanted to do a vegetarian sort of fast brand, whether that was a takeaway delivery idea or whether that was going to be a physical site. But I'd never had time to sit and work it out. And I remember, you know, as soon as the first lockdown happened, um, Nadim and I decided that we were going to go and cook for King's College Hospital. I have a close friend who's a doctor there and they were just really um, having a hard time. And so I 
you know, called him up and said, can I organize meals? And so we were cooking then. One thing that struck me when we were cooking was that, you know, firstly, first I said, I want to make this, whatever we cook for these people tastes like home cooking because nobody is spending enough time at home right now. And I'm sure they're missing home cooking. So I don't want to make it restauranty. I want to make it feel like it's been cooked with maternal love almost. And then the other thing that struck me was that hospitals are such international places, yet when you go to a hospital canteen, you're literally faced with fish and chips. And that doesn't seem right to me, doesn't, you know. So I said, okay, we're going to cook really international food. So, you know, one week we do Egyptian food, another day we do Italian food, another day we do Indian food, and so on. And then when the hospital was stable, we started cooking with a charity called uh, Nishkam Swat, who are incredible guys. And their kind of operational prowess is just like mind boggling how they do what they do. And they really, really inspired us. So I think it was just before June, I sort of said to Nadine, you know, right now, everyone, all everyone, I feel all everyone needs is comfort and joy. And that just stuck. And then I developed the sort of menu in a week or so, started testing recipes and stuff in my home kitchen. And then a week later, suddenly we were teaching it, training, I was training the team. And I wanted to do uh, this brand without any compromises because I felt very strongly that this was a time for us to really stop and think, to really re-engineer the world that we wanted to be part of. And... Um, there were compromises that I wasn't willing to make. And one of those was the packaging. I felt like um, there's enough plastic in the world and it took us a long time, but we managed to find uh, packaging, which is 100% home compostable. So you can throw it on your compost heap and in 90 days it turns to soil. There is nothing left. And then, you know, we shortened our supply chain. So we were able to work with farmers who are, you know, looking after the land, looking after the environment, who share in our values. And because we built that relationship with the Nishkam Swat, I felt that this was a project with which we could give back. So for every box that we sell, we donate uh, a meal to Nishkam Swat as well. So it feels like um, a regenerative project. And it's also exciting because it's something my team feel very excited to work on. And I think that's important. I want to touch on one very important member of your team, actually, who's been named, who um, is your husband, (laughs) who you uh, adore so clearly. And I adore the love you have for one another. And I read a quote where you predicted you'd be dangerously brilliant together. And clearly you are. (laughs) But I would love... I would love to talk about love, actually, and its transformative, you know, properties. If you don't feel too embarrassed, because I suspect your your husband might even be sort of in the shared living space (laughs) that you're now doing this podcast in. Will you talk about meeting and what change that brought about in you? Because my sense as an outside observer is as it really has. And I love how this is so much a joint enterprise and when you you both work on together. Oh, my God. I think uh, firstly, I apologize because I will gush. And uh, you might need a thick bucket. <laughs> <Gosh> away. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, meeting Nadim has just been so transformative uh, for me. You know, we met very accidentally. He, at that time, had set up a, a tea business with his brothers. 
they were looking at single estate teas from small gardens all over the world. And his brother had read about me and I was giving a talk somewhere and he encouraged Nadim to go meet with me uh, because he thought that uh, <laughs> we might be able to do some business together. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so Nadim turned up and I remember um, they were two very close friends of mine who I hadn't seen for about a year and we were going to catch up after the event. And Nadine came and introduced himself to me or was introduced by the PR. And half an hour later, he was still there. So my friend's husband said, you know, when's this guy leaving? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and and uh, after he left, eventually, a few hours later, my friend's husband actually turned to me and said, my God, you know what? You're going to end up married to this guy. And I remember thinking how ludicrous that was, you know, for many reasons. Um, and then we just kept in touch. And, um, you know, he was supposed to be trying to sell me tea. I kept getting free tea from him. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I was doing a lot of pop-ups and things at the time. And I remember, you know, sometimes I would do like the same menu three nights in a row at, at somewhere or the other. Like our neighbors, Trish and I did a three night pop up with them. And he came to every single one, despite the fact the menu just wasn't changing. And so he then got a reputation as my stalker. And, uh, <laughs> and then I thought, well, what do I do about this? I mean, it's probably just easier to marry him than get an injunction. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so I married him. Oh. You know, I have never in my life known anyone who has just liberated me in so many ways and who really lives to see me dream like you know he's and he's also one of these magical people who sort of um dreams with his eyes open you know he has such vision and what I love most about him is that he with every vision he has with every entrepreneurial idea he is an entrepreneur with every idea he has, he sows in something good, some some good purpose into that. And that just has really inspired the way I do business as well. You know, we initially weren't business partners at Jaconi. I'd opened with two other business partners and uh, six months down the line, we decided to buy them out. And it was the first time I'd worked with Nadine. And it, it is tough. You know, there are times where we're just like, you know, headlock. Um, but, uh, but, but I just feel that we have such respect for each other. And, you know, he's wise beyond his years. And I've learned so much from him. But also, we try not to stray into each other's areas too much. There are things that I'm very good at that he can't do. And there are things that he's very good at that I can't do. And we kind of give each other the space to do those things. Yeah, you stay in your lanes, but you know, you're going in the same direction, which is which is all important. But he also runs, so he also runs a company called Creative Family. So they do kind of strategy, business design, interior architecture, all sorts of things for other positive companies, mainly in the food space. And they've actually just launched <laughs> this. I'm just going to hold it. I'm not plugging. Give them a shout out. <laughs> is beautiful. It's called Wild Press. And they are working, like I said, everything that they do is incredibly good. So this is British apple juice, and they're pressing with different British apples. I, I had never even heard of some of these apples. 
but the whole thing is to encourage biodiversity. So they're working with small farms and orchards and enabling those people to bring these to market. Otherwise, they just go to waste. So they're pressing this delicious apple juice called wild plant. I think that's wonderful. Also, I think this is something this is very much in Fortnum's wheelhouse. They love, you know, obviously biodiversity and and finding very particular variants. I think that's wonderful. I love that both of you are two sort of such integrity, you know, in what you're doing. And I wondered, is there anything that either one of you has planned for the future? Are you now content with the restaurant and comfort and joy and possibly another book and several columns <laughs> and yeah. whatever else you have in your arsenal already. <laughs> oh, God, you know, Nadim and I, I think, are addicted to living in uh, some sort of chaos. We like being really busy. Obviously, right now, the world is in such a strange place. I think we have to think carefully about everything we do. And, you know, right now, we're just like praying for our restaurant to be able to be open again. So looking forward to that, because for me, that's the joy. You know, it's the I love services. I love being in my restaurant. I love cooking for people because I think, you know, the first thing about cooking is if you love to cook, it's because you love to feed and that requires people. And for me, uh, the joy of service is just, firstly, it's deeply entrenched in me that that kind of need to serve a community because it comes from, I was brought up as Sikh and it's one of the, the, you know, main tenets of our religion is to serve your community. And it's something that my grandfather talked about so much and really entrenched in me. And then, you know, also just the kind of random sampling of humanity that walks through the door every night. You never quite know who you're going to meet. And, the, you know, so many of our guests have ended up becoming such good friends. So I miss that. But, you know, I just want to continue with what we're doing uh, with Giacconi. I want to keep cooking delicious things and uh, working with incredible producers. Right now, we're talking to a biodynamic farm, which I'm really, really excited about bringing their produce to, to Giacconi. I want to continue writing because I think for me, the first two years of, of Giacconi was a real shock because I was in the kitchen all of the time, surrounded by people all of the time. And I'd led such a quiet life as a journalist. And suddenly I was in the middle of this throng. And so I really miss that sort of quiet luxury of writing. So I want to write more. I definitely have plans for another book, another few books, I hope. And uh, I'm really, really enjoying my column you know, to, to be able to tell human stories behind food is, is just such a joy for me. I'm really loving doing that. Well, I urge everybody, the moment whichever version of lockdown we're in now lifts, I would urge you to go and join the community that is Giacconi and, um, and in the meantime sample comfort and joy because it, it is just that comfort and joy. So we're nearly out of time for today. But before we go, I would love to run through a series of quick questions that we ask our podcast guests. And actually, I feel like you are perfectly suited to answer this first one, given how you met your husband. So describe your perfect cup of tea. Oh, my God. My perfect cup of tea was made by my husband. There you go. <laughs> and what's your most joyful memory when it comes to a meal? Uh, just uh, generosity and, sh and people to share it with. That's, that's what I love the most. What food or drink do you wish you'd invented? Oh, there is so, my head is so, I'm so sorry. Don't worry, that's a hard question. It it's is like, that's a really hard question. <laughs> you know, um, it is uh, those amazing, I've, the name of the restaurant has completely gone out of my head. It's those amazing layered potato chips. 
at that restaurant in King's Cross. What? <laughs> yeah. What are those? Oh my God, they're incredible. They're like um, confit, really thin slices of potato that are confit in a lot of fat. And then they're set and then they're cut and they're fried. And so they're like the crispiest chips with loads and loads and loads of layers. And I just think... They're really thin. I know exactly what you mean. Completely yeah. genius. Okay, well, that... <laughs> Whoever's, you know, made that can claim it on the comment section in the podcast. Um, what has been your biggest disaster in the kitchen? I remember one time I was confing uh, goose legs, which were really expensive, in a pressure cooker. And I was so busy and running around that I completely forgot that they were in there. And by the time I took them out, they were just like the charred remains. <laughs> they were awful. Oh, no. <laughs> I had, to, I had to apologize to my kitchen porter about a zillion times because the pan was just so badly burnt as well. It was bad. It was bad. <laughs> what music do you listen to when you cook, to, when you cook at home? Um, Sufi music. I am mad about um, Sufi traditions, Sufi philosophy, and I love Sufi music. Okay, and this is the last one. What are the three ingredients you think are essential store cupboard items? Well, I love Malden salt. I just put it on everything. Um, I love it too. I, I love it. And I think for me, there are things that you can't, re- things that I, you can't replace. Like I put curry leaves in a lot of things and they are so unique. They, there's nothing in the world that can mimic that fragrance or flavor. So I would definitely hold on to my curry leaves. Oh, oil or garlic. Yeah, one of, <laughs> as long as it doesn't end up on your lap. <laughs> and actually, also, I love citrus. Um, you know, I think that anything citrus, whether it's uh, sumac or tamarind, lemons, limes, I love that sort of sweet sourness that it brings. And I love the life that it gives to, to food. And I put lemon zest and lime zest in things. Um, and I think it's it's almost like a, another seasoning for me. And it just brings a lightness. Yeah, I almost think of it alongside salt and pepper yeah. as like the third condiment for your table, Absolutely. actually, because it can just liven everything, you know, even on pasta, you can put it on or, Definitely. you know, chicken cutlets. It's just that amazing accent. Definitely. In fact, we had a takeout yesterday, uh, a few days ago. And, you know, I, I remember eating this risotto and being like, oh, this could have just been lifted with a little bit of uh, lemon zest because that just lightens everything, especially when you're having something quite dense like risotto. Just a bit of lemon zest through that could just just bring it to life, breathe life into it. It cuts it, doesn't it? It, re- it also helps you digest it, particularly those sort of, yeah, those big risottos. It's why I think the Italians always have salad after their main course, because it's sort of the thing that sort of allows them to digest you know, whatever sort of kilo of pasta they've just had. Yeah. That is it for today, Ravinda. I just want to thank you so much for making time for us, particularly when you're recovering from COVID and you're balancing about 12 different businesses and then several kind of writing gigs. So thank you. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Felicity, for having me. It's been so lovely. And huge thanks, of course, to you as well for tuning in. If you haven't already, do let us know if you're enjoying the Hungry Mind series so far by kindly leaving us a rating and a review. Remember, you can also subscribe to Fortnum's Hungry Minds wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. We'll be sitting down with more brilliant guests for fascinating conversations ranging from food and drink through to arts and culture.